Well, as Andrew said, we are, uh, have been reading through the Bible 90 days. And as he said, you could grab a hold of the app. But also each week uh, in the beginning of the sermon, like today, I'll let you know what we're going to be reading through that week. This next week, we're going to be reading through uh, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And one of the things I've been doing is trying to pick a passage uh, within that that we're reading. And so far, I've been kind of looking at things at the end. So, so the story that we're looking at here in Ruth is actually, you know, of our reading for this week, we'll read through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and, and then this is the very last chapter and last part of that chapter uh, from the reading that we look at. And I also just want to say that, again, I know I've said this before, but the hope that we have in coming to a church service like this and in hearing a someone talking, the, the hope is not that a person has something to say or that a person or a church is going to be able to find a passage to look at. Uh, that, that's the hope is actually quite different than that. The, the hope is that Jesus is alive and that Jesus cares about us and that somehow Jesus is going to bring us to a passage that he wants us to look at, that Jesus is going to bring us to songs that, that are going to, that he wants us to sing and look at, and that Jesus is going to highlight something or speak to us. And it's the hope that Jesus is doing all that to change our hearts and to give us hope. And so the backside of that is, as that hope requires, since I'm up here speaking, Drew, Damon, you have these different people up here, the hope requires that you have some grace and forgiveness for us, for me, because the way that I speak or whatever it is that I do, things that I say are just, there's no way of avoiding it. There's going to be things that become a barrier or so. So you, it requires some forgiveness, some grace, and just a persistence to say, no, what, what I'm hoping for is, what is it that God's saying to me? What is it that Jesus is trying to say? And, and so with that in mind, uh, let's take a look at the story of Ruth. It's not often preached on, but it's considered to be one of the most beautiful stories in the whole Bible. It's a wonderful story. Um, it's short. It's only four chapters. And the way the story starts is that there's this woman, uh, Naomi, and she's married. And so they, they live in Israel, so they live in one country, Israel, and it says that a, a severe famine happened in that country, and, and the famine was so bad that they were forced to, they, they felt like their only hope for life and rest, that, that their hope meant that they had to actually leave their home country, and they went to another country, Moab, which we have just read through this past week, that there's all sorts of uh, problems and uh, tension between Israel and Moab. It, it is not a, uh, it, it's a difficult relationship between those two countries. Uh, someone coming from Israel into Moab was not necessarily going to be welcomed. It, it they weren't, wasn't looked at as a blessing. And so there's all sorts of difficulties. But even though the difficulties were so uh, were there in them moving, the difficulties to stay at home were even worse. 
And that's a, a, a very common thing uh, throughout history. I know this week I've been uh, thinking a lot about uh, one of my grandfathers. I, I don't know why. Uh, it's interesting that, that Drew brought up that about his father-in-law. I, I was, uh, my, my grandfather, uh, one of the things I was thinking about is, is one of the only things I know about him is that he snuck on board a freighter when I think he was 14 and came into the country illegally. And I don't think they thought of it that way back then, but it wasn't ever put. It's just now that looking back, I, I realize that's probably what happened. And, uh, but no one knows why he came here. All anybody knows is that he never talked about it. And there was just a lot of pain associated with that. And he carried that pain in. And that's what is the background to this story and the background to every other story that we have as we're making and we're thinking through decisions is important to, to understand that stories are not just rational things about what we should or shouldn't do or this, that there's all sorts of pain that's involved in, in events like Naomi and her husband coming into Moab. Uh, they leave, they come into Moab, and uh, her husband dies. Uh, pain, and then efforts to alleviate that pain, and then instead of finding peace and rest, more pain put on top of that. And then her sons uh, you know, find wives there. So there's some hope, there's some joy, the pain of leaving. We don't know when in the process her husband died, but her sons found wives. So there was some joy that was there, but then her sons died. And so it's just pain and pain and pain. Maybe some events that you could look at that there's some hope, that there's something about some joy, but, but there's just these waves of pain that just keep knocking everything out. And then uh, she finds out that the famine has passed. She's lost everything, and, and not lost everything in terms of money, because that's a meaningless thing to someone who, when you really look at the pain of life, that she's lost everything of value to her, which is her family her sense of her home, her sense of her family. Uh, she does have these two daughter-in-laws from her sons who had married, but they're from Moab, and she tells them, you know, look, you guys, I, I understand you love me and you care about me, but, but I've heard that there's food now, and I've just, I'm just going to head back to my home country. And so she tells them to stay. And the one understands and stays but but Ruth who the story is about sees things differently <laughs> what she sees is that in the midst of all this pain something has happened that she doesn't want to let go of and she says to Naomi I'm not going to let you go by yourself I'm with you I'm one of you and she says something interesting to her she says your God is my God in other words she sees the story is about Immense pain caused by who knows what, all sorts of different things, but just there's pain. But then out of that, Ruth, the story starts with her having faith that out of that, God has given her something wonderful in her relationship with Naomi. And she's determined to keep that. And she 
Naomi allows it to happen. And, and the story starts with her in that love for Naomi and her determination and her faith, not really knowing that much about Naomi and Naomi's God in Israel, but, but just knowing that, that I have this with her and I value this relationship with her. And, and I want this, to, that it's there in my heart and I want it to continue. And some sort of recognition that this in some way was a gift that God was given in, in the midst of just a very painful life. And so from that heart, Ruth, we see, uh, she doesn't just sit on that. She doesn't just be a taker, that she's driven, not on a sense of right or wrong or what she should or shouldn't do, but driven from this thing that the Lord has given her in her heart, this sense of family with Naomi. She's driven to work very hard. And what she does is she goes into uh, the fields in their culture. The Lord had set up this process of gleaning where a, a person, when they made their harvest, God said, look, you cannot, you know, take the harvest out of the corners of the field and you have to leave things for people to be able to come onto your property and, and take whatever they can find. You need to leave part of it. And so that's what she was doing. And if anyone's worked in the field, uh, it's an immensely difficult job and just gathering a harvest without all the modern equipment that we have, it's extremely uh, taxing and difficult, but gleaning or taking what was left over and scattered, that's even more difficult. And so she's working hard and not because out of obligation, not out of a sense of right or wrong, but she's working harder than anyone else would work because her heart is driving her. She wants to take care of what she feels the Lord has given her, uh, which is this sense of family that she's found with this woman from another country, Naomi. And uh, so she goes out in the field. And this rich landowner, that owns the field and owns the harvest and is, you know, has, uh, he's a leader in the community. He notices her. She looked different or he noticed something about her, but it caused him to ask, who is this woman? And one of the people in his household tells him, you know, this is who she is. And when he hears that, he immediately tells the people of his household, a few things. He says, hey, look, don't just leave the scraps for her. I want you to actually take some of the stuff that you've already think and, and just leave these bundles behind, leave food behind. In other words, make sure that she's able to get all that she needs and make this job easier for her. He doesn't just, it's interesting because he doesn't just say, hey, take this and go give it to her. He, he actually follows the lead that she's going down. Uh, and he, but he comes alongside that in such a way to make it easier. And he tells his servants something very interesting. He, he commands them. He says, don't touch her and don't insult her. Now he then calls Ruth and tells Ruth, hey, don't go to someone else's field because I've told my people not to touch you. I'm going to protect you. 
I'm taking care of you. Stay here. You can come get water for me. He even like invites her in when everyone in his household is eating. I think it's around lunchtime. They have some bread. He gives it to her and, and he lets her know, just stay here and, and everything that you need is going to be here. But what he doesn't tell Ruth is he doesn't say anything at all to Ruth in terms of, now when you're here, I want to make sure that you don't touch anyone out here, that you don't mess with anyone, you don't injure anything, you don't take anything that's mine, and also I don't want you saying anything insulting to anyone. He doesn't say anything like that to Ruth, but he does say that to his own people. Why does he do that? Because he knows, as everyone else should know, that there's a million reasons why we feel justified in causing harm to someone and justify in insulting someone. So long history in the world of, you know, we people love looking at different minds of people that are just sort of insulting at people. And there's actually a long history of that throughout the world before computers and everything else of making caricatures and different things. And the, the purpose of the insult is to dehumanize someone, to justify the harm that's going to come their way. And Boaz, he's not stupid. He knows he's not saying that there's anything particularly bad. This is his own household he's talking about. But he knows the tendency of everyone, including his own household, uh, that, that we have this tendency to justify and to cause harm to people, but to feel as though, well, it's probably, you know, it was Ruth's fault, or Ruth did this, or, or this or that, or this is, I'm just speaking what's the truth, and, and to cause injury and insult to people. And so he tells his people not, but to the one who is at a disadvantage, to the one who is vulnerable, he only gives encouragement to, he only says, take comfort that I'm here for you. And if you look at the writings of Jesus, Jesus does the exact same thing. He only gives warning to people that are in a position to uh, power, to, to cause harm, to cause insult, and that are justified to the Pharisees, the religious leaders are there. But, but to those that are outside of that, he speaks words of encouragement to and says things to them, your, your faith has saved you and things like that. So the story starts in pain, and then Ruth, in faith, believes that God has given her something. And acting on that faith and acting on that heart that she feels like God has given her, without knowing anything so much about God, begins to do this. And this happens to her, and she goes back and tells Naomi, hey, this is what happened. And then something interesting happens. Naomi... Uh, because she does know more about what God has said in the Bible. And it's, she knows that Boaz is a kinsman to her, and she knows what God has said regarding a redeemer, and she knows it clues in to her that God is doing something. And she has an idea of what God is doing. And she draws that from these passages that we just read through in uh, 
you know, Leviticus and Numbers, those are just like incredibly difficult because there's just so much crazy stuff that happens and you're just like looking at it, just wondering what does this have to do with anything from the craziest part of the Bible Naomi sees something that God has said about this kinsman redeemer, and from what the Bible has said, she puts that into the context of what's happening right now in their lives, and from that, she gauges, this is what God is doing, and lays out in faith a path that they should follow. And so what she tells to Ruth, she doesn't really explain it too much, but she says to her, I think this man is a kin of ours. And she says, just do this, go and lay down at his feet and he will tell you what to do. And don't worry, he's going to go take care of it. And so Ruth does it. Boaz wakes up and sees her there. And what he sees is he's been letting her take the lead. He hasn't wanted to impose on her. He's been following her. But when she does that, it's her saying, we're family. God has made us family. I want to be family in whatever capacity you're willing to do that. And when Boaz sees that, he immediately that day, you know, gets up and we read the story about him making it happen. There's the passing sand, a whole bunch of other odd things. But but the, the thrust of it is he ends up marrying her. In other words, he brings her into his family in the greatest way that he possibly can, in the closest way that he possibly can. And it's this beautiful story of pain, but a small hope that God has given in the family that he's created out of that pain and how he's expanded that family and met their needs and blessed Naomi, blessed Ruth, blessed Boaz, blessed their village, blessed their country, and blessed us through the coming of Jesus as we're going to see. all through people having faith in the, the change of heart that God's given. And it's this beautiful story now that we're going to look at of the community coming around them and saying nothing but words of not giving insult, not giving injury, but saying, we agree with this. We love this. This is fantastic. And, and coming behind this union and just throwing all sorts of hope behind it. And it's this beautiful picture of hearts coming together through what God is doing and a, a direction that he has given in his word to help us understand the hope that he has. And it's a story for us to ask, how can this happen for us? How can, in the midst of pain, we find a change of heart? How, how is it that we can find a hope in coming together? How is it that we can find some sort of hope in that everybody knows that if we're going to have any rest, it's not going to be found in a continuing insult and injury. And as with Boaz, it's not a, you know, each side needs to hear each thing. No, he, he only said it to one side. But even so, how do we get to that point where we can have this kind of story uh, be our story? And I think the passage lays out a few things for us that I'm just going to uh, quickly go through. The, the first thing it says, 
So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he made love to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has left you, has not left you without a guardian, a redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. So sorry, I, I, I read the wrong part. The part that I meant to read in the story was the first part in chapter, in verse 11. Let me read this. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephraim, as famous in Bethlehem, through your offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman. May your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. In other words, what they say is the reasons why we're feeling this hope, the reason why we're embracing this and we have these feelings of joy is because these stories are in our mind. And the stories that they bring up are the stories of Rachel and Leah which we don't have time to look at, but the passage itself focuses on Perez, who came from Tamar, because when it goes to the genealogy at the end, it starts with Perez. So I'm just going to talk about the story of Tamar. But before I talk about that, it's important to say that what they're saying is, is that the change of heart that we need, or the path that leads to us being able to grab a hold of the blessing that God gives. And the blessing that God gives is in the midst of pain, being able to find a sense of family, in the midst of pain, to be able to find a sense of coming together. Instead of going down a road of insult and injury, to instead find a sense of family together in the community, in the supportive, that it's not a matter of us just telling ourselves that's where we're going to go. That what they say is it's actually coming about because of the stories that we have in our life and the way we look at those stories. And as I brought up my, uh, my grandfather, you know, I, I know that we lived next to him. And I know that we went to family gatherings. But for some reason, I was searching all week. I, I only have one memory. Of him, and it's a memory I've had for 40 years. It was when I was in third, about third grade, I think, and uh, and it's an odd memory. Uh, it's he's working on his truck. He has the hood up. He's in there working on the engine, and I'm about third grade. I don't know how old you are in third grade, young. And I'm just standing there, and I don't know how long I'm standing there for, but in my mind, as I often look back at the story and remember it. It was probably like an hour. And I don't remember him ever looking at me, but I just remember him there working on the truck. And I don't remember understanding any word that he was saying. I don't know even necessarily, I, I know that he knew English. I, I just don't. What I do remember is that the only words I remember were it seemed like every word was a cuss word. And most of them, I didn't even know what they were. But he's just there. And I just remember sitting there listening to him. And I remember 
just sort of my heart feeling sort of a sense of joy that my grandfather was talking to me and I had this hour and, you know, or, or the, whatever this amount of time. And then I remember my dad coming out and just getting this huge argument with him and sort of end it at that point. But that's my memory. But regardless, even though it's such a weird thing and whenever I have tried to talk about that, it doesn't make any sense to anybody. But, but whatever the case is, I think about that all the time. And my heart at that time, and just this week, for the first time in my life, I realized I'm not even sure that he was actually talking to me. But then I realized, well, whether he was or wasn't, how would I know at this point? He's been, you know, passed away now for like 30 years. This is like a 40-year-old memory. It's brought to my heart joy in knowing him and having this memory with him. And why would I ever want it to be? Why would I want it to switch? There's a lot of reasons why I could switch it to a memory of insult and injury. But my whole life, it's been a memory of, I had this time with my grandfather. And I've treasured it because I've known lots of people, had lots of friends who didn't even know their grandfather and would just love to have had just one memory that's good. And so I've always thought about that. And it's probably my fault for not having more, you know, whatever, but, but that's it. It's the memories that we have and how we look at it that determine where our heart goes. And part of that is a decision that we make on what memories we're going to grab a hold of, what memories we're going to think through. And what we see in this story is that it's not just the memories that we choose, but God's pointing to some memories. And the memories that they looked at, that we're going to look at here with Tamar, it's not just a memory that they had in their interactions. It's a memory where they see that that God has done something. Now, the story of Tamar is one of the odder stories of the Bible. Um... But believe it or not, uh, my parents brought me, you know, one one of the churches my parents brought me to when I was uh, younger, there was this old lady, I think she was like 80 years old, uh, Miss Sibelius. And all we did in Sunday school is she just went through every single story of the Bible and had these little flannel graphs. And believe it or not, I think I remember her going, she went through all these odd stories. So I don't know how you do this story on flannel graph, but she did it. But anyways, here's the the story. It's the story of Tamar. And it starts with Judah. And he has a son. I think the son's name was Ur or something like that. And it says that Ur sinned and did evil in the sight of God, and God killed him. And so uh, he was married to Tamar, and Tamar didn't, they didn't have any kids. And Tamar felt like she needed to have a child. And part of it might have been her standing, part of it might have been uh, her security to have someone to care for. But Part of it may also just have been that she had a sense from God that this is something God wanted to do. And the reason why I say that is because Jesus was born from the lineage of Tamar having a child. If, if you know, that, that's the, God chose for this story to be a part of the lineage of David, as we see, but also 
the story of Ruth, but more importantly, the story of Jesus. And so there's very much cause to think that like God wanted, God did want this to happen. And, and so there's cause to think that part of the reason why she just felt so intent on this is she just knew she was supposed to have a child. Uh, what Judah did was he gave her uh, another of his sons. And what this son did was, as it says here in uh, with Boaz, that he made love to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. Well, this son made love to her in such a way that it was impossible for her to conceive. And he did that on purpose and that angered the Lord. And the Lord killed him also. And so at this point, uh, Judah is thinking, I don't know what's up with this girl, but I'm not giving her another son because I'm afraid he's going to die too. In other words, it had nothing whatsoever to do with Tamar. She wasn't the problem. It had to do with him and his sons. But he projected the evil that his sons were doing. He projected it as a threat coming from Tamar when there was no threat coming from Tamar. But he hardened his heart towards her and didn't give her any more sons. So she responded to that by dressing up like a prostitute and going out to the edge of the city and Judah uh, coming out and deciding, man, I want to go have sex with someone and just decides he's going to go to a prostitute. And so he sees her and not knowing that it's his daughter-in-law goes in and has making love isn't even like the right word to use for that, but whatever he goes into her and she becomes pregnant and he, doesn't know any of that. He gives her this some cord or some things to like make sure that like as a pledge sends back payment and she's nowhere to be found. Then it becomes evident and it comes to his attention that Tamar is pregnant. He doesn't know anything that's happened. And he responds to that with such hate. He actually says, bring her out and burn her alive. And before they can do that, she says, look, the one who made me pregnant, here's his things. And he sees that and he says, you're more holy than I am. And it, the situation it changes. Anyways, I feel weird even telling that story, but that's in the Bible. Uh, you know, there's, there's all sorts of just crazy stories that you're going to read through Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. But, but they all have the same type thing here. That... It doesn't get any more, I mean, it can get more messed up than this story of Tamar. But this is pretty messed up story. There's just, it's just saturated with pain, just saturated with abuse. And there isn't any place in there to really find room to say anyone had done anything good. It's just a messed up picture of family and what should be joy, and what the promise of Jesus that's coming from that is lost, and is all that's left with is just pain, and suffering, and insult, and threats, and causing injury. But generations later, people noticed, hey, it was really important to Perez be born. 
If Perez wasn't born, then Boaz would have never have been born. If Boaz had never been born, Ruth in this story that's come out in a different generation, granted, but nonetheless, as they're looking at it, they're seeing that through this, that all of our efforts, everything that we've contributed has been pain and misery. But in the midst of that, God has brought something out and we're taking joy and we're taking, having faith and we're wanting to celebrate and whatever it is that God is bringing out, that's what we're going to focus on. And what they say about that is he has not left you without a redeemer. What's happening is, is what we don't realize is we're not going to just be able to decide, I'm going to change my heart. We can't even decide. You can't even make a decision to say, well, the way I'm thinking about things, I actually don't think that I'm probably wrong at that. We can't even really do that, let alone have an actual change of heart. How is it that that happens? It starts by the, the only contribution that we might have is found in the way, the stories that we see. And what we see is God is not letting us exist within the pain and misery that we cause each other, that he's giving us the hope of family, community, nation, whatever, you coming together, whatever, however it is that you want to describe that, God is sort of imposing that on us for our good because we would just tear that apart. And every action that we do, pulls us away from it. And, and, but God, Jesus, is changing our heart, and, and that change of heart doesn't begin with a command to change heart. It begins with him putting into our lives and giving us actual stories of redemption in our life, and stories of redemption that we can read about here in the Bible. And the stories of redemption in the Bible point us to the stories of redemption in our life, and those all point us to a Redeemer who is Jesus. And we'll talk about that here in a second. But what he's asking us for, he's putting a hope out there. The hope is not that we're going to straighten up, that we're going to stop causing harm. I, I mean, there's a hope that that's going to happen, but it's not coming from a hope that we're going to figure it out. It's coming from a hope that we see that God is intervening, that begins with this recognition of, or an admission of guilt, a need for forgiveness, but seeing that everything that we have is being given based on a forgiveness that God has in his heart towards us before we've even asked for forgiveness. And it's a hope that as bad as we can get, even if we killed Jesus on the cross, that God is powerful enough to raise him from the dead so that he can continue to live and continue to be our Redeemer, continue to be our Savior. And what a Redeemer is is someone who's paying the price for all the misery that we've caused to making it so that we can have some joy, that we can have some love, that we can have some amount of enjoying what they're enjoying here, coming together and having a hope for the future. But that's going to be based on a hope of what God does. And God has given us in our life already 
these stories of redemption that we may or may not be grabbing a hold of. But as we grab a hold of them, it requires us to admit some guilt. But it's worthwhile to admit the guilt if the hope is that God will give us the rest that comes in this story where it says, so Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife and made love to her and the Lord enabled her to conceive. And it says, the women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. He may be famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons. It's a weird way of saying it, but all they're saying is, is, the way people would normally go about trying that God's way has ended up being better. And I think that's what I found to be true, that God's way always ends up being a way that points us. What he gives us freely out of grace is always far better than what I could achieve. And the truth is I can't really achieve anything. So, and it's not even five to one. It's like I, I, my actions would drive things into the negative in the other direction. But the hope that we have here in this passage points to from goes from that and points from Perez, this horrible story with Tamar, but that gives a glimmer of hope. And it leads to David, who in their culture and their mind ushered in the greatest time of blessing for them and the land or who it is. In other words, all these stories that you're going to read about in Joshua and Judges, you can look for. There's a story in Joshua of uh, Jericho. And again, there's a prostitute there. And she's of the lineage uh, of Jesus. There's all these stories of pain that we cause each other and difficulties that we have. But through them, God gives us these stories of redemption. And as we grab a hold of those stories and find peace and joy and hold on to them and let the stories of redemption, it, they wouldn't stand on their own. They only stand because of where they're pointing to. They're pointing to Jesus. They're only stand because the true redeemer is if God is willing to come down and become one of us. And if God is willing to overcome the evil that we have, even to the point of death and to forgive us and to give us a promise of everlasting life and to give us a promise that in heaven, things will be different. I'm going to close now because I sort of run out of time, but I have a, uh, a uh, good friend that we talk regularly, and most of the time the conversation is really just about, you know, hey, what can I pray for you for? What what can, you know, he, he asked me, what can I pray for you for? And I ask him, what what can I pray for you for? And uh, he's, he's my age. He's African-American. He's grown up here in Oakland. And this last week, as he was asking me, what can I pray for you for? And what I was asking him, you know, you know, I told him, shared different things and then asked him, what can I pray for? And he talked to me. And then I just asked him, I said, hey, you know, this week, 
you know, as everything's going on, what, what passage comes to your mind? And he, he didn't respond immediately, but then he texted me this passage, and I'm just going to read it to you because I think it has to do with, it'll help explain the hope that this passage of Ruth is pointing to and the hope that we can have. And so I'm just going to let the passage speak for itself and read it, and then I'll close. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, though, we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. Because when we are clothed, we are not found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given to us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and we prefer to be away from the body and be home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us the things while done in the body, whether good or bad. Since then we know what it is then to fear God. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it's also plain to your conscience. Let's pray. Jesus, we place our hope in you for everything. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us hold to these stories of redemption that you've given us into our own lives. And we pray that as we read through your Bible, your word, that we would see the stories of redemption, that our faith in Jesus would be based on a hope that you've given us in your word and a hope that we see acted out in our life. And I pray that we would cling to that hope. We pray that you would forgive us for our sins that are so many. And forgive us for the mess that we've made of things. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring us to a place that's really defined by, by heaven. But help us to be pleasing to you, cognizant of who we are. In this life, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.